We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war. We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet. We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet. Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn. With me, my co-hosts this week are Neil Bradley, uh, Jason Martin, and Juliana Barembwem. Uh, this week, as you may know, we're going to be talking about and listening to protest songs and the historical time and events that inspired them. We'll also be looking at some protest songs gone wrong and asking the question, have any protest songs achieved the presumed goal of at the very least informing the public about some form of social injustice and perhaps as a result forced some change? And if so, on what scale and to what, if any, lasting benefit? With us also in the studio this evening is a very special guest, uh, lead singer, songwriter and guitarist for folk band Relic, Tim Trepignier. 
Hi, guys. Tim's repertoire includes uh, protest songs, unsurprisingly, uh, and we'll be hearing some live music from Tim a little later on. So getting to the topic in hand with my panel of experts here, which includes Tim, because he's an expert, yeah. probably more than everybody else. Um, what good are protest songs? Are they simply a useful form of emotional expression on any given topic for the singer and the listener, just like any other song that a person was? Or is there something more than Is there something inherent? Well, I mean, I do wonder sometimes if protest songs do kind of, as long as they, they are played and survive, record a kind of history of the um, consistency of what the people want and the consistent fact that the elite never actually give it to them. Uh, because protest songs have really kind of said more or less the same thing for, I don't know, since they've been around, and they keep saying it. And uh, so aside from, obviously, the cathartic effects of the singer, uh, for the singer, and uh, and the uh, the listener being validated by someone else, you know, thinks that and is expressed in a catchy tune, um, I think they have a historical relevance, for sure. I don't think they ever have any positive effect in the world beyond that. Um Although that's a positive effect in and of itself. I that positive effect, of course, is very awesome. But every person who probably sings them obviously wants to affect some kind of change. I mean, I don't think that they're just thinking. Uh, I just want to complain about the elites. I mean, they, they, they may want, you know, to get some recognition and they want people to they want to affect some change. But, but that's, that's never happened. Never, never will. Yeah. Um, I mean, I personally, I think there's been, there have been many. Excellent protest songs. Not only, uh, I think protest songs tend to be, for me anyway, the best songs and ones that I like because not only are they good songs in the terms of catchy tune that you like listening to, but they also carry a message that, you know, you can really um, identify with depending on who you are. Um, there's so many songs out there that just carry a, a kind of a crass kind of message. You know what I mean? Not very, not very deep in any way. You know, and maybe even not such a good message for people to actually internalize them. Although, my lumps, my lovely lay lumps. That like kind, that, I that mean, kind of thing, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, it's catchy, but it's missing the the deeper uh, emotive, um, <laughs> you know, lesson or uh, teaching, you know. Uh, I'm not sure there's much in that. But, I mean, for example, um, one person that, if there was anybody who ever wrote a protest song, who had the potential to affect change as a result of maybe not just his songs, but uh, also who he was and what he said was maybe uh, John Lennon. Um, and I say this because, not mainly because as far as I'm concerned, he was assassinated for what he was saying. Because, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, um, there's really enough evidence based on uh, on historical evidence in other cases, that he was kind of Sirhan Sirhan by um, Mark David Chapman. Um, Why is it that assassins always have three names? I know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like they're trying to taste I mean, the, the FBI had 281 pages of files on John Lennon. Um, so obviously he was of interest to them. And they, were, they, were, they were recording his, his speeches, what he said on TV shows, uh, they were following him, you know, that kind of stuff. And then he gets shot in very strange circumstances. And he's, I mean, of all the people anybody would want to shoot in the U.S. around that time in the 80s, really, John Lennon. But, you know, of course, there's a psychological explanation of it. You know, this guy was crazy and he wanted to be him or something. and he just, Whatever, you know, catcher in the rye. 
But it's all a bit suspicious, you know, especially, as I said, given the kind of evidence for mind-programmed or hypno-programmed parties like Sir Hans Trahan, who definitely was one. So, yeah, John Lennon, I mean, because of the audience he had and how many people knew him coming from the Beatles, I mean, if he was going to push it and stand up, kind of sing songs and also talk, more, even more importantly, right. maybe, talk on, on the show, talk to people and organize rallies, well, then you could see how it would be a threat, you know? Yeah, I believe he was coming out of a hiatus from about seven years of not recording anything at all. Yeah, he did Double Fantasy with with Yoko, and it was his first time he'd actually entered back into the into the music uh-huh. world. And so, yeah, that you know, he was just poised to enter the public arena again. Uh-huh. So that might have been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our plan our plan tonight basically is yet to to just do a rundown on uh, a lot of. Uh, protest songs and discuss them and give you a bit of history to them. Um, some that you're probably, many people are aware of and know quite well, but we don't know what they're about. And also, some that you're really aware of, that you've heard, uh, but you have no idea they protest songs in the first place, which is something we'll talk about. What's the point in having a protest song if nobody knows that it's a protest song? Um, what's, a, what's an example of that? Of a song that's kind of like a smuggled protest song? A smuggled protest song would be, um, well, I don't know, maybe I'll just play a little bit of a song here yeah. and see if uh, if you recognize it and um, I'll see what you think. Crush. I think that song maybe wasn't so popular in the US for some reason, no. but it was very popular in the UK. And right. it was very, it, but, it was in 1988, and it would have had a lot of emos, the early emo type thing. People running around the James Bond and stuff, uh, kind of like lolling about on the dance floor yeah. to that song. <laughs> and it's called Orange Crush, and it's by R.E.M. And that was not, it wasn't about an orange juice drink. It wasn't about Orange Crush. No. It wasn't about Fanta or no. you know Tab or anything like that. It was it was about no, Agent Orange. Really? It, oh, uh, wow. The title song is a reference to the chemical defoliant Agent Orange manufactured by Monsanto and Dow Chemical for the U.S. Department of Defense and used in Vietnam. So, I mean, even the words of it, you know, I've got my spine, I've got my orange crush, collar me, don't collar me, I've got my spine, I've got my orange crush, we are agents of the free, I've had my fun, and now it's time to serve your conscience overseas. Like, why? I mean, something as serious as that, you know, Agent Orange being dumped, you know, millions of tons of it dumped on trees in Vietnam and causing all sorts of cancers and heart disease and, you know, um, and deaths, basically, and mutations and all sorts of horrible stuff for the people in Vietnam and also soldiers, U.S. soldiers who were there, you know, 
you know, well, I mean, dropping bit, it, basically. It was a bit Gavin Rothdale there with his sort of abstract lyrics. So you're not quite sure what he's saying. Exactly, Does he know? mean something important? I don't know. Please so, tell me. Michael Stipe is like that. A lot yeah, of his lyrics yeah. are very kind of vague and skirting around. Whereas you, know, you have, like, into the world as we know it. Which is, you know, yeah. Exactly. You know, so protest directly and to the point, if you want to, you know, get a message across you and you feel strongly it. about something, just say it, you know. And, I mean, there are a lot of songs that do that. Right. But... Most of the people who sing them are relatively unknown, mm-hmm. and mainly because they don't, you know, there's a lot of good songs, but they don't get the air. Well, maybe he was worried about being exactly. a little bit too political. Yeah, you have to wonder. Because, you know, I mean, every kind of singer who has become what I would refer to as relevantly political, I mean, I'm not talking about like, you know, Bono or any of these artists and this, you know, actors now that are all like pretending to be political, but when they, when they really say something truly political and truly against the, the current elite, they do have a tendency that things tend to happen to them they either die which is the easy one and then the other one is that they get kind of suddenly they're all besieged with scandals and and, and different types of things so i mean you know obviously he yeah. has something to be afraid of scandals and tax frauds yeah or comes to mind yeah fujis well fujis as i recall were always very kind of on a lot of rappers actually are i mean tupac certainly was you know coming from the background that he came to so there's actually a lot in the in the African American hip hop community that do actually say uh, it's mostly against it's mostly kind of down on the ground. It's not grand strategy stuff, you know. I mean, but yeah, yeah. I mean, so that was you know that R.E.M. song was uh, from 1988 and was talking about Agent Orange a bit late uh, in 1988, but you know, <laughs> 14 years. Ago. Yeah, but at the same time, at the time, one of the uh, major eras, although you will sit with me, one of the major eras for uh, protest songs, obviously, the whole... Uh, that was the Born in the USA age. That was like uh, with Tom Cruise, Oliver Stone did that one, wasn't it? You're thinking... Was born on the 4th of July? No, yeah, Born on the 4th of July or something. Yeah. Like Tom Cruise is the Vietnam vet or That's something, right, yeah. Oliver Stone film. But, you know, obviously the whole hippie movement in the 60s, uh, we love and... What, well, that got what, derailed what, what do they call that? It's a... What, what kind of era was that? The, the flower, flower power, power, or whatever yeah. you know, uh, Woodstock, uh, the, right at, in the middle of the Vietnam War, quote unquote. Uh, really but you war. notice that whole thing came about like really kind of all of a sudden because it, that whole movement started with a, it was a very anti-war piece. Uh, you know, they had just come from seeing Gandhi had been so successful, and then Martin Luther King had come through, been so successful, and so everyone was like, yeah, we can just give peace a chance. And then suddenly it became, got turned into sex and drugs, you know, like really quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Which is kind of a little bit suspicious. And it does seem like that's the last time that uh, true protest songs were played on mainstream right. radio and making top ten lists on billboards. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't hear that anymore. It was no. a time in history when you yeah. know, Country Joe and the Fish and all these other songs were yeah. actually up there among the other ones. So. Country Joe McDonald or whatever it was. Country uh, Donald and the yeah. Fish, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Like yeah. Um, well, yeah. That could give an explanation. Everyone's always saying, you know, why do they always have this constant parade and stream of Britney Spears's and Aguilera's and, and all these different people, and it's like a flavor of the week type of thing, and they get these this new hot band in, and then they're there for a week, and then they're out again. Everyone's like, why does it happen that way? And, and maybe it is just kind of like Operation Distraction, you know? Mm-hmm. Make sure nobody's there long enough to get a conscience and say something, you know? Yeah. And uh, one of the major events, actually, of that era of the Vietnam um, War 
era and all protest songs that came out, Woodstock and stuff, um, was the Kent State University shootings. Um, and I'll just play a little bit of the song since we're playing songs. Uh, it's by Crosby, Stills and Nash and Neil Young. It's called Ohio. Seven, one of the wounded 
uh, a guy called Alan Confora located a copy of a tape of the shootings in a library archive. Um, and there was an analysis done of the of the tape by forensic experts, and they concluded that the guardsmen were given an order to fire because at the time it was explained away, and I suppose history records that it was just the guardsmen feeling that they were under pressure and just lost control, lost loss of discipline, open fire, that kind of thing. But it seems that um, there's a voice heard on somebody was recording it and heard uh, someone basically saying, all right, prepare to fire, get down. And people saw uh, uh, National Guardsmen um, get down, and aim and shoot and fire. And uh, there was even references to one of them you know, aiming specifically at one of the leaders of the protests and stuff, a guy who was actually killed, who was shot in the mouth. Um, so, particular event was from a conspiracy theory point of view, which is far closer to reality these days than the official narrative, was that, you know, after four days of protests weren't backing down, somebody gave the order from on high to actually scare these students into submission by killing them. Uh, and this was... Um, this was this had a had a actually a couple of years later on Bloody Sunday, which is another protest song, but not by U2, uh, another protest song uh, by Bloody Sunday in Northern Ireland, and the same was done there, where orders were given uh, from on high to the military to shoot uh, civilians engaged in kind of essentially you know protest, justifiable protest. There might have been a few rocks and bottles thrown and stuff, but you know. That's in the realm of protest, as far as I'm concerned. When you're being, you know, uh, when you're when you're confronted with kind of baton wielding police and stuff, you know. So um, that was the song "Ohio" by Crosby, Stills and Nash. And um, one of the one of the, were you going to say something? Yeah, well, I was just uh, going to say that Neil Young himself is an interesting character mm-hmm. because uh, he actually wrote "Ohio," and he also wrote a couple uh, anti-racist slavery songs. Um, Alabama and Southern Man, mm-hmm. but he also later on wrote that song "Let's Roll," um, referring to the 9/11 plane that was shot down yeah. and rocking in the free world. So his politics are a little strange. You have to wonder there what yeah. happens to people. Um, you know, I suppose it's it's no wonder therefore that things don't change as a result of protest songs when yeah. the people writing the protests are so easily swayed yeah. by propaganda yeah. and by their own kind of you know, identification with nationalism or patriotism. They can be, you know... He's catching a lot of flack in Alberta just uh, at the present time because he uh, described the oil sands, the tar sands in Fort McMurray as uh, looking like Hiroshima. And of course, that's where I'm from. So all the, the blue-collar workers, the guys tied to the oil passion who benefit from the industry are saying he's a traitor, he lives in California... He has no right to declare, you know, it's a disservice to our veterans. And oh, so, yeah? Yeah, he's, he's gone on that. He's complaining about the about the exploitation of oil in Canada because it's destroying the environment. Yes. He's a hip, he's a, he's a environmentalist. Yes, yes. He's sort of teamed up with David Suzuki. And so he's, yeah, a lot of people in Western Canada don't like him anymore. They're boycotting his music and things mm-hmm. like that. So. Argu- arguably, the singer-songwriter associated with the protest movement in the 60s is Bob Dylan. Yep. Now, here's a recent article. Bob Dylan and the Ethics of Market Fascism. He did a 
Chrysler advertisement at the latest Super Bowl. I saw that. And that's not his first. That began about 20 years ago with these same corporations that he railed about mm-hmm. 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Show what's going on there. What is going on? Yeah, he's, he's a but, little, You know what? I have a confession to make. I never liked Bob Dylan. No, I, I never liked his, I never liked his music. I think he's got a crappy voice. And I like Bob Dylan. I'll, I'll be the defender. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> you, you, can't make a, you can't make a virtue out of having a bad voice. You know what I mean? <laughs> he did. He did. And since then, it shouldn't know, be allowed. He did, you know? and that's that's partly what happened to well, what happened in the sixties. You had this creativity that turned into this schizophrenic. Um, anything goes. Let it all hang out. You know, I, I think I think music, the actual music, degraded. Well, yeah. At least late on, and the uh, time of the season. Well, who's your daddy? I mean, and it's interesting. Bob Bob Dylan's "Blowing in the Wind" is very often said as the best song of all time, at least in the Western world and in the English-speaking world. It's said it as it's a number one on a few lists that I saw. Of 500 best songs of all time, blowing in the wind. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know about that, but you know, there are, I mean, there are, there are some, I don't know. There are some great songs in the 60s, of course. But all the shower, that's a million songs. Okay, if, if you go and um, you know, actually listen to the lyrics and then read about what the writer intended, often they never intended it to be any kind of protest at all. But because of the momentum of the movement. Socially at the time, it became associated with like what? Um, the guy who wrote them. Um, uh oh, name escapes me. There's one classic. I think it was a Creedence. We shall not be moved. Clearwater oh, that song. Fortunate son. Maybe or that was for what it's worth. For what it's worth was not such. A big it was about the hippie riots in, in yeah. L.A. in the in the late sometime in the, in the 60s or something. That wasn't really protesting anything other than hippies not being allowed to hang outside after 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> you can protest about more serious things. And, you know. Well, I wanted to do them in, in defense of Bob Dylan and selling out. I mean, I mean we kind of realize and accept how, uh, no matter how loud you speak or, or scream, and no matter what you do, things never really tend to get better uh, when you're dealing with the kind of, you know, sort of pathology that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And so I can kind of see that maybe he got tired and a little bit strapped for cash, and he was like, you know what, dude? You know, I've been saying this for years and years, and nobody's listened to me. You know what? I'm going to go do a face their act because, you know yeah. what? I need to buy some yeah. steaks or something. It happened to Willie Nelson. Yeah. Willie Nelson. But people didn't come down too hard on him because they liked him. He, he sold out. He did a couple of ads. Yeah. But, you know, we can forgive Willie. Really? Yeah. You know, I mean, the redhead is stranger. Everybody loves him. Yeah, but you know, I was thinking sometimes these uh, the the subtle songs or whatever are due to certain circumstances. I mean, sometimes yeah, it's accidental. But um, it made me think of case of many uh, South American singers who were forced to tune, tone down their songs so much because they were chased by you know powers that be. So in those cases, it's actually kind of you know easy to see why they did what they did. Or it could also be to save their reputation nowadays. But, I mean, sometimes it's, it's the necessary thing to do unless you want to end up killed. The whole, um, there was a whole movement in the 60s. Um, South America wasn't so much into the hippie thing. But there was a whole movement 
called a nueva canción or new song. And it just started, I mean, it, you, when you look at the origins, it basically started just to, to bring back the folk folk music and the local instruments and stuff like that. And then they added things like, well, uh, let's fight poverty. And then they became kind of anti-American, you know, and with reason. And even though the, the government of the time were kind of defending it, uh, Peron and Argentina gave, actually issued a law that said, you know, half, uh, half the songs in the radio have to be national mm-hmm. because they didn't want the U.S. to come in and, you know, do the whole imperialistic thing. And then when the dictators, the dictatorship came, they just killed, tortured, murdered all artists, or a lot of them, or send them, or they had to go in exile. You know, and then after a while, when this dictator started, and the dictatorship started falling, well, then they kind of, they still, they, I mean, the, the power that that, uh, those years had on people uh, made it so that people became so afraid of speaking up that they had to talk about you know whatever bu- butterflies and and things like that. While the actual message was, you know, we don't want elites in power, we don't want more torture. But mm-hmm. sometimes you're kind of forced to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. You had to disguise it in a way, or kind yeah. of use metaphor. Absolutely. In a sense. I yeah. mean, wh- while the dictatorship was lasted, a lot of them, um, while it was still in power, a lot of them hid. That way, couldn't, the, the authorities couldn't say, you know, you're singing a protest song here. You're just sing, singing about butterflies and and whatever, you know. But the real message, when you heard the when years later, they could actually speak up. They said this song was about Pinochet. Mm. This song was, you see what I mean? Do you think yeah. the, the audience would get it at the time, or? Yeah, yeah. And there was a, the, I mean, there were hundreds of artists that disappeared. You know, and and yeah. and one of them actually, uh, the one of the most famous ones, Mercedes Sosa. She's kind of known in the U.S., but a lot of them weren't even in visas. Like uh, there's a Cuban guy, Silvio Rodriguez, uh, who was uh, denied visas in the U.S., especially when um, Seeger turned 90. They wouldn't allow him to go. You know, I mean, there's still kind of an oppression thing, and I, I don't know if it's because a protest song is so dangerous that it makes the powers of the ego like, holy Moses, you know? Or is it because, you know, they don't want people to even think about those things? Yeah. Do they actually think that people are going to rile up because they think they... I think they can see where it goes, and they just have a knee-jerk reaction to anybody singing about things that are totally the opposite of, of, of the ideals that they espouse, which is control and domination and keep people down. And you start singing a song about rise up people, let's overthrow our masters. I mean, you identify yourself as a target for any kind of oppressive, oppressive regime. In Latin America, that meant that was, yeah, it could mean life uh, would be forfeit very, very easily. In the U.S., there's more of a control aspect to it in the sense that they can basically just buy the big, uh, you know, music uh, corporations and stuff that basically own the rights to all your songs and stuff. And just mass produce a bunch of yeah, yeah. Or they can silence people who start yeah. doing that, and you just don't get played. And you know they can make yeah. you just go away in a certain sense, and therefore your 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 any potential you have for for changing anything through song or music is totally nullified. Because like, the, like the dicks of chicks, for example. Yeah, or yeah. The how easily it can happen. Yeah. the media propaganda. You know it can sway public opinion against what you're trying to do, you know. Um, That's why we don't hear it. Yeah, on absolutely. On the radio today. 
yeah. big one because part of okay, we talked about the sixties and you know the free love and the fight the power era, but arguably, and Neil is of this opinion, arguably that wasn't the real era when it, uh, or that wasn't the the era when protest songs and fighting the system was uh, the strongest, let's say, or the prevalent that it was maybe 30, 40 years beforehand. Um, yeah. So we want to kind of talk a little about that, about that. But maybe before we do that, since we have promised some live music on the show tonight exclusively, uh, maybe we'll get um, Tim to play us a little song here. Um, he's just getting set up. Tim, as we said, is a wandering troubadour from Canada, and he's going to sing one of his own songs, his own protest songs that he penned himself, and we reckon you're going to like it. Okay, yeah, this uh, song is called Crooked as a Dog's Hind Leg, and people who've heard my music before know I have a special fondness for uh, idioms. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, you know. If you're crooked, you can be a little bit crooked, but if you're crooked as a dog's hind leg, you're pretty crooked. Crooked as crooked can be. Just ain't my scene. I gotta go. 
trying to sell me a brand new car, upwardly mobile and going far. But Lord, I ain't no movie star. Thanks, guys. That was excellent, Tim. And Juliana on backing vocals and Jason on keyboard. And the uh, piano. That was, that was a great song. I love that song. Actually, I've heard it before, I have to admit, but I actually love it. I think it's a brilliant song. And it's, yeah. it's, it's just my uh, criteria for a proper protest song where it's all pretty clear and if you just listen to the words, you can't, you know, can't pretend that, oh, he's talking about something else there, some <laughs> metaphor. Well, no, it's about corrupt politicians and dirtbags. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you try to, to uh, categorize protest songs, it's simply, you know, saying, oh, we don't want them to do X. Uh, sometimes we don't want them to do anything mm-hmm. at all. Just and stop. Yeah. It's kind of like, and then you get like a social commentary mm-hmm. song, but it's still kind of in that vein, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because in there we're talking about preachers and TV, the media, everything. Yeah. Media, what politics, is, and religion. Yeah. Three, is that, three main ones. So there's nothing, I mean, there's no point in really asking you why you wrote that song. No, just three things sort of, most about social control, you know, the three pillars of control in our world. Which are? Politics, religion. And media. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much that sums it up, yeah. Really? I didn't catch that in the song at all. No. It's, it's really, very subtle. It is. Yeah. Nothing, nothing. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's super. We're going to have some more from Tim later on and show another number. But uh, as I mentioned before that song, uh, Neil wanted to hold forth on um, something about maybe of modern protest songs in the 20th century anyway. Anyway, mm. And it's not necessarily the Vietnam era. It's before that. Yes. Um, a lot of the big singer-songwriters in the 60s, Dylan included, they always cited at least two guys and others from the 1930s and 40s, Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. Now, Pete Seeger was in the news recently. He just passed away at 95 years of age. Um, still playing music. He was apparently chopping wood the week before he died. Mm-hmm. He's this big, tall guy, and he's been active his whole life. Um, so Pete Seeger was an inspiration for a lot of people in the 60s. Um, let's see what songs of his that people ought to know. Um, well, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Yeah, Joan Baez, Baez sang a version of that that made, made it pretty much made her in the yeah. '60s. Um, we shall overcome. That was written by him as well. Mm-hmm. Now, we shall overcome, for example, became ten, twelve, thirteen years after the after he'd written it and it was first aired on radio in the U.S. Then became the anthem for the Black Civil Rights Movement. Right. The only thing I know about we shall overcome is. People just say, we shall overcome over and over again. There's a song that that came from. Is that, you know... Um, well, can I just play a bit of it here? Just go to, for it, to, yeah. to hear? Because yeah. I don't actually know that song. The one they wrote down in Montgomery, Alabama. They 
said, we are not afraid. And the young people taught everybody else a lesson. All the older people that had learned how to compromise and learned how to take it easy and be polite and get along and leave things as they were. The young people taught us all a lesson. We are not afraid. All I know, yeah, I think this is what I know, but I just have a, have a memory of seeing or hearing people just singing, we shall overcome, mm-hmm. we shall overcome over and over again, but it's well, from I that think song. This, this comes back to something Juliana said, that part of what makes an anthem, so to speak, is recognition in your audience, of, of for them at least, of what um, mm-hmm. Pete Seagull would have long since been known associated with civil rights movement and and much else besides. You see, in the thirties in the thirties the US had, at least on paper, a left wing government. After the Wall Street crash there were protests, there was widespread poverty. I mean the country was decimated. And this is what brought Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt to power. And his New Deal release was supposed to begin bringing the United States into the 20th century in line with other countries in Europe, for example, where you had social welfare, basic, basic social welfare protection for people from the market. Um, this the year in which Guthrie and Seeger were coming out of. So their songs were about, you know, workers' rights. Um, they had one album together called uh, talking unions, as in a talking shop, and they—I I don't know what extent—they inspired other people to think about them. Rather, there was this wave, there was this movement in America at the time. There were mass, there were there were protests in the 30s that were larger than any of the protests in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, workers. Yeah, standing rights and people just coming off the back yeah. of the the Great Depression, yeah. basically, which was engineered yeah. by yeah, the dust Wall Street bankers. That, yeah. Yeah. that incident in Ohio, where whether it was based on a uh, complete fiction or some truth, that they were afraid that uh, Kent State and the, the town would be destroyed. Detroit City was completely, well, not completely, but pretty much burned to the ground in a major riot in, I think, 1939. So we can see where they got the idea from. They were afraid from the 30s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. Um, well, yeah, it's kind of interesting because, I mean, it's a part of history that's kind of forgotten and ignored, you know, and as you said, it was probably in terms of popular social unrest and riots and kind of demonstrations. It, it trumps the, the 60s. Um, but it's kind of interesting that, I mean, a lot of it, you know, was informed 
by you know 20 30 years previously with the kind of um, almost like a social awakening or a popular awakening uh, among the working people of the world that, that was fueled and was given legs by the uh, by the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution, which was overthrowing the the corrupt oligarchical kind of bizarre regime. I think it was corrupt. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Ultimately, but what happened? What what caught people's imagination was this idea that, hang on a minute, who runs this country? Who makes this country work? Well, it's the millions and millions and 99% or whatever it is of people who actually work every day, go out to work every day and do the hard labor that actually makes the country run. So these people automatically and naturally kind of uh, caught on to this idea that, well, we should have a lot of say in, in how the country runs, and certainly we shouldn't be being you know, treated like second-class citizens and animals almost in some cases to, you know, work to the bone for, for nothing, you know. So it was it was an idea that whose time had come and, um, and it's kind of interesting that over those, you know, since the kind of early 20th century, uh, around and, and it's, there's a lot of movements, especially in Western Europe, where these ideas as to how a country should function, what kind of form of government you ha- should have and what kind of rights workers should have was really... Uh, to the forefront in people's minds all over Western Europe and, and further afield yeah. and, and in the US. And this is why they had a platform. They were nationally known. They were Guthrie and, and Siegel were on the radio regularly because there was a general consensus that this is exactly popular. And, and they, they, and they, they weren't actually saying controls. anything. They hadn't said exactly. Anything. Yeah. They hadn't. They didn't have the controls at that time because it was a new thing, right? And the radio was new. Yeah. yeah. And even the, the popular uprisings were kind of new in that sense to the new American mm. kind of uh, yeah. state, you know. But I find it interesting that that all culminated in, or was kind of snuffed out essentially in the Second World War. You know, well, it was very had, convenient. Well, you had six, you had millions and millions of people. Yeah, we're back, folks. We got cut off by Blog Talk Radio again. Um, I'm going to write a protest song about Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> but uh, anyway, what I was saying was that we had this, ups- this, this movement of workers' rights in the beginning, you know, in the early 20th century, leading up to the next 20 years. And then she so had this mass movement of ordinary people. So what happens uh, before it can actually make any effect, any real change? You have the Second World War, and 65 million yeah. of those ordinary working people are dead within four years. Right. It's kind of convenient. Well, and I people mean, traumatized as a result of the whole thing. I mean, that just put an end to the whole. I don't, I don't study too much of that particular history, so I can't call myself an expert. But I did read uh, Little Hart's book on the uh, the military strategy that was used, and it was very obvious. He doesn't, I don't think, out and out say it, but he does kind of hint that basically it was a fight that got picked, um, and. Uh, and that uh, the America and uh, Europe, most of the European nations, really were were kind of itching to try out their their war tactics, and mm. uh, they got a little bit more. They bit off more than they could chew, and they kind of made that whole situation a whole lot worse than it could have been. And that Hitler could have been taken care of much more absolutely efficiently, yeah. and uh, 65 million people didn't have to die. No, so it was... makes you wonder if they were like, oh Jesus, we need a war to 
to distract these people exactly. and then they yeah. really do off many more than surplus of well, bullets. Yeah, well, it's kind of like they say, we've got a lot of popular energy here among these masses. What do we do with it? Either, you know, they're going to throw, overthrow us or affect some change with this energy or we can direct it into a war, a world war. That first one didn't really kill too many of them. You didn't know? kill enough, you know. Let's go for 65 million this time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it was Churchill who, he said a number of incriminating things regarding God, guys, we really have to get the states into this war. I mean, we need them. So, you know, there's a, you can imagine this stuff yeah. they're thinking behind the scenes. I mean, they're on the record saying that, okay, well, let's see how we manage this. We can get the Nazis and the Soviets to destroy each other. Cool. Let's keep it that way. And, of course, when you look at the history of the war, the, the substance of the war took place in Eastern Europe. Yeah. And it wasn't until the end that... The, the US and the UK. The Americans rolled in to claim the victory. Nice and slowly. We'll go via Africa nice and slowly. No, no. <laughs> so, but, but actually, the, the story of the war is, is told in what happened to these two guys, Guthrie and, and Seeger. Um, a guy who's still alive today, Billy Bragg, he's an English folk singer, songwriter, and uh, anti-war activist. Um, he describes Guthrie as the original punk rocker and the reason he said that was because uh there was a popular i think the u.s was had either just announced it was going to war or it was building up to it and there was a popular song on the radio till 1940 and it was it was let's see what was it originally called um it was originally called god bless america you can tell it's it's one of those patriotic sounds um, no, no, this was, this was, you know, got, got, yeah, it was nationalistic, jingoistic. It was written by Irving Berlin, and it was playing on the radio, and it was driving um, Woody Guthrie nuts. So he decided to take, take essentially the same song, its structure, put it to a different melody, um, one from Oh My Loving Brother, which was an old Baptist gospel hymn, there's a story behind that. That was recorded by the Carter family, as in June Carter, who later married Johnny Cash. But anyway, he took part of her song, took Berlin's God Bless America and changed the words. And that became the famous, this land is your land. Do we have... Franklin D, you listen to me, you ain't gonna send me cross the sea, cross the sea, cross the sea, you ain't gonna send me cross the Okay, that's the wrong song. What is that song? That comes next. <laughs> that's, that's, that was one of the anti-war songs they wrote. Yeah. Okay, well, that's mislabeled here. Yeah. Oops. Okay. Um, what, what was the name of that song? This Land, this land is, is Your Land. No, that one that we just heard. Oh. The one we just heard was... Um, across the sea? I think it was um, Washington Breakdown. <coughs> yeah, so... Guthrie and well, Seeger. We, yeah, we don't have this land as your land unless we can sing it. <laughs> this land is your land. land. This land well, is my land. Well, chances are good that the yeah. version we know today, because it was changed later, yeah. Guthrie had a particular paragraph in it. Again, it's not very subversive on the face of it. No. Okay, he got the same one uploaded twice. Yeah. doesn't matter. Uh, anyway, we don't have this land as your land, but it's actually a pretty well-known song. Most people know it. In the version that comes down to it today, it was already changed by the 60s, has a verse in it that goes, 
There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. Sign was painted. It said private property. But on the backside, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. Hmm. Now, that's the end there. This land was made for you and me. In the original, it was sung, um, God bless America for me. Hmm. Just me. But just in changing that, that became a big hit on its own because people recognized what Guthrie was doing with it. You know, it's you and me. I mean, it's not the country doesn't belong to uh, the rich, so to speak. Yeah. So this was this was a kind of protest song, but that was nothing compared to the um, the work they did together. Guthrie and Seeger formed a band called the Almanacs, mm-hmm. and they got in hot water in 1940 because their album was anti-war against the Second World War. And we have a couple of songs, one of which we, we can play that one now, actually. Rich. The one about Franklin D. It's called Washington Breakdown. Right. Franklin D., you listen to me, you ain't gonna send me cross the sea, cross the sea, cross the sea, you ain't gonna send me cross the sea.
Yeah, he he was holed up. There were, many people were. He got called up in 1955. Um, for being un-American? For being un-American. That's un-American. He was alone. He was the only one, at least of, of the artists, who, when called up, refused to plead the Fifth Amendment, which would have asserted his testimony to be self. So you, you say, oh, I have nothing to hide. You plead the Fifth. And he instead said, no, I'm going to use the First Amendment, free speech. I'm going to say what I want. And he was alone in that because that was a terrifying time. Most people capitulated and said, no, no. Well, some of my friends might be communists, but, you know, mm-hmm. he, he, he just saw right through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, the guy was, I mean, he was, he, and here's an example of someone who was consciously trying to use his music to educate people. Um, so... He was explicitly, he was actually helping to camp, um, someone to campaign in 1948, mm-hmm. a guy named Henry Wallace. Now, Henry Wallace had been vice president of the United States from 1940 to 1944. The powers that be, basically, summarized it, were terrified of this man, and they organized a little coup to get him off the ticket so that he wouldn't be vice president from 1944 onwards, um, because he was actually intent on implementing the changes that Roosevelt had sort of slowly, slowly been putting in. Mm-hmm. Of course, Roosevelt died eight months later, mm-hmm. and Truman comes in. Hand pusher. Hand pusher. And it, but anyway, this guy, Henry Wallace, um, practically, he was campaigning with Jeeger to get him as president. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's when he got hauled up mm-hmm. for, the, for being un-American. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean... It's, as I said, it's a, it's a whole period of history that is kind of too long ago to be included in people's very short-term memory these days, you know. I mean, yeah. so was the Vietnam War by this stage, you know. Um, so, but a lot of stuff was happening then, like mm. we mentioned, as a result of the whole kind of social uh, justice type uh, ideas that have been spread, if kind of deceptively or erroneously or falsely by the kind of Russian revolution and stuff in, mm. uh, in the early part of the century. Um, and, it, and it took hold, but as you mentioned, the, 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 the Second World War put pay to that, and mm. then communism, as you've just mentioned, immediately followed on the heels of the Second World War, so that anybody who uh, dissented in any way against America and Americans ideal, America's ideals uh, was a commie, and that very mm. successfully suppressed the vast majority of people. Yeah. Uh, and Seeger had been a member of the American Communist Party, but so were 300,000 other people. Um, he, he changed his mind. Both him and Woody Guthrie, they changed their tune, literally, during the war. Mm. And, you know, they gave the reason for it. Well, they saw the face of fascism in Europe. Mm-hmm. And they, they said, all right, okay, well, this is the wrong war to be against. Okay, totally we're behind it. And then later almanacs, the band songs reflected that they were for the war, but they always made sure they were making clear, yeah, we're up for fighting the fascists, mm-hmm. and we're going to fight the fascists at home too. Mm-hmm. Woody Guthrie always had on his guitar, wherever he played, this machine kills fascists. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. And by fascists, they basically mean, I mean, fascism was defined almost in the modern conception of the, uh, of the term uh, by Hitler. And that basically means someone who, an authoritarian dictatorial leader who wants to control uh, 
you know, fascism didn't originally mean that. Or when, the, when the idea was first kind of mooted, mm. it was just another idea of a way to organize society. Yeah. But it became associated with Hitler right. and Mussolini and they, you know, conquering other countries and enslaving people and stuff, mm. you know. Uh, so it was basically what we have today, you know, ruled by by an elite. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they really picked the fight with the right guy when it came to to, to the Second World War because I mean. I think he turned out worse than I thought. And so in the end, you know, you are kind of like, well, we are kind of glad he got got taken down. But at the same time, you know, we know that the reasons going in are not as honest as they said. Absolutely not. Tim, on that topic, has a song. So we're going to call on him once more to bring us some live, uncensored uh, music. This, Here I am. What have you got for us, Tim? Here I am again. Um, this one is called uh, Bring on the Eschaton. What does that mean, Eschaton? I believe it's like uh, end times. Um, Armageddon, apocalypse, you know. Okay. I think it's a biblical term. Um, so it's basically the idea behind the song is um, huh. that cycles in power are bringing on yeah. global destruction. Yes, in a sense. Yeah, it's sort of... Um, the modern day Hitler's. It's my res- response to uh, what happened on 9-11. You know, I just finished reading, um, well, it's called 9-1-1, The Ultimate Truth now, but it was back then it was the occult significance of 9-11. Laura's mm-hmm. just written it, and, yeah. and it deals with the, uh, the possibility of uh, 9-11 being an inside job and the involvement of the Israelis and the Secret Service in America, mm-hmm. you know, and that kind of thing. So it's got the... The God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament in here and a whole bunch of other good things. So. Excellent. <laughs> I'll take it away. Yeah. Jesus is 
coming to prep for Armageddon. Jehovah's ready to bring on the Ishton. Towers was an inside job, a six-sided key in the Pentagon. And why would a country want to attack itself? And do you really want to wait around to find out? And who's responsible for this? It's a neocon Zion Fists Jesus is coming to prep for Armageddon Jehovah's ready to bring on the Eshaton Jesus is coming to prep for Armageddon Jehovah's ready to bring on the Eshaton Jesus is coming to prep for Armageddon Jehovah's ready to bring on there you have it. Your subtlety, Tim, it's, it's amazing. amazing what it? was yeah. that song about? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm at a loss for words. I can't answer that. I don't know, yeah. It's a great song. That was a great song. I heard it first a few years ago. And yeah. Yeah, it hit home. If anybody's um, interested in getting a hold of these songs... Yes, I have a Bandcamp account. Bandcamp? Bandcamp. How would they find that? Um, You go to Relic Songs. The name of the band is Relic. So Relic Songs, Mm R-E-L-I-C-S-O-N-G-S, one word, dot bandcamp.com. Okay. And they're all up there. Right. And there's some... you, You can buy them. Yeah, they're a dollar each or something, and and all the uh, proceeds go to sot.net. Oh, well, that's very generous. And you can find a link on the science page. If you go to Songs of the Times on the right-hand side, and Uh near the bottom it says Relic, you click on that, that'll take you right to Bandcamp as well. Okay, cool. So that's another way for our listeners to support support this uh, great radio station. This radio station and everything else we do, and at the same time listen to some... Uh, protest songs that are going to cause you to rise up and overthrow the, the evil doers in this world. So, I mean, everybody wins. Down with pathocrats. This one time at Bandcamp. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they had to. They named it Bandcamp. They knew it was an obvious reference to that movie, right? Yeah, that was excellent. Um, yeah. Jesus is coming to prep for Armageddon. Yeah. Yeah, the sun's going first, you know. Yeah. Clean up a bit, get it ready, and then the, the mm-hmm. big guy, Yahweh's on for his some, way. And, uh, for some reason, when he sings that song, I imagine like Jesus and Jehovah in like a kitchen, <laughs> making an omelet or something. I don't know. Called, the Eshaton, <laughs> the omelet, the omelageddon, uh, and Eshaton is like some sort of like spicing or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. a foodie song. And they're going to serve it up. They're going to serve for it up, everybody. You know. But you know that song, for example, it's a great protest song for several reasons, and. One of the things I can think of is, you know, you can educate people so much first through music. You can do it in a peaceful way, which is something that the powers that be don't like. I mean, that's the the revolutions that the, the leaders that were killed mostly were, you know, for peace. John Lennon, 
Martin Luther King, you know, you could do so much, plus bring people together, the whole, you know, limbic resonance, people thinking together, uh, singing together, mm -hmm. and this, it would be such a way, uh, such a perfect means for education and r for raising awareness and stuff. Why doesn't it work? <clears throat> I mean... Well, I think there's probably at least two reasons, um, because, of, like we mentioned earlier, the music industry being controlled by the oligarchs and people with money and who control the media just don't allow this kind of music to be played. Yeah. And also any uh, singer in the spotlight, you know, who's not just there for the fame and the money, who actually has a conscience and has his eyes open or her eyes open and sees what's going on in the world, essentially has a responsibility to say what's going on. But as soon as they do that, they're marginalized. Or take the right. Chevy to the levee. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about yeah. here. You know what I'm talking about. So it's just, there's just no way to win. So essentially a, a singer-songwriter just has to say what he says or she says and, uh, and let the chips fall what they may. And, it's so sad. I, I, just, I want a revolution with music. Tim, you're the leader. <laughs> <laughs> I like music. Um. Yeah, so where do we go next? We were at the Second World War and how it kind of put an end to any kind of movement for social change afterwards or beforehand. It, it killed off most people and uh, there's probably a collective trauma uh, in many places around the world as a result of the Second World War that kind of focused people on all the things like staying alive. Um, not the song, by the way. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> didn't they, but didn't they jump right into like the Korean War and all these other yeah. different little Asian? In Vietnam had been prepped actually during the Second World War, yeah. and so and it took a good twenty years for people to, to kind of uh, to get on the, the kind of bandwagon again, and the whole uh, New Age movement and love and anti-war movement in the sixties and seventies. Um, but I mean, previous to that, there's there's um, just prior to the Second World War, there was uh, a war in Spain, the Spanish Civil War, and um, it was kind of, uh, it was Franco, the, the dictator, the dictator of Spain at the time, um, was basically, you know, right-wing, conservative, you know, ultimate totalitarian kind of control, and he was opposed by the kind of... Uh, you know, local uh, uh, Republican. Well, uh, no, there, there was a democra <laughs> democratically elected Republican government in yeah. Spain, and he came in. Finally, came in over through that. Over through it, and yeah. Through, yeah. And uh, so the, that spawned a, a civil war from 1936 to 1939. Uh, one of the probably most well well known uh, aspects of that, or things that came out of that, was uh, Pablo Picasso's uh, painting Guernica which was um, a town in northern Spain called Guernica that was bombed by the Nazis because uh, in that period, 36-39, Franco was in, in league, the Spanish dictator was in league with, with, uh, with the Nazis and the Nazis lent, lent or loaned um, a few um, bombers. bombers to go down and bomb a Republican stronghold, an anti... Uh, what about the deposit you got to put on something like that? <clears throat> exactly. But there were, at the same time, because of the whole ideology going around at the time of uh, people being against kind of totalitarian rule and, you know, oppressive leaders and stuff, there were 
international brigades, as they were called, of people who came from all over the world, actually, to fight on both sides. Um, well, the international brigades, I think, were primarily anti-Franco, and they came to support the Spanish people in their fight against dictatorship. But there were also um, people on the other side. And this is an example of how polarized the whole idea was and how it was being, you know, you had very different views among ordinary people, supposedly, uh, about where it should go. And there were people who actually fought, went to Spain from around the world to fight for Franco. Uh, And this included people, you know, from on both sides from the same country. So you had, for example, I mean, one of the most celebrated ones, at least in song, is um, there were people from, men from Ireland who went against Franco, but they also went to fight with them, with Franco. Um, uh, they were called the blue shirts because some reference to St. Patrick's blue collar or something, they wore shirts and, and stuff, but the Catholic Church at the time in Ireland supported them. So, um, the people who went there from Ireland to, to support Franco and to fight for Franco, for dictatorship, uh, they were basically sailing uh, from Ireland to Spain underneath, beneath a, a swastika, essentially flying a swastika flag, uh, wearing blue shirts, and at the same time on a boat, leaving behind them was a bunch of guys, you know, their neighbours, sailing behind them to go on, when we get to Spain, we're going to be shooting each other, type thing, yeah. for our different ideologies in the foreign countries. But people came from the US and from the UK and from France and from most European countries, and they were called the International Brigades. And um, there's a, a song. Uh, it's most made most popular and most famous these days by an Irish singer-songwriter called Christy Moore. It's, uh, the name of the song is Viva la Quinta Brigada, which means long live the 5th Brigade, but it, was, it should have been the 15th Brigade because it was the 15th International Brigade that they were originally attached to. Um, so... I suppose the best thing is to play a little bit of it, if I can find it somewhere here, um, because we have a long list of songs. Here it is. years ago in, uh, in Glasgow and you can hear the crowd singing along behind it but that was Viva uh, La Quinta Brigada by Christy Moore and um, you know the, the lyrics are uh, um, he basically, around yeah. ten, he says 10 years before I saw the light of freedom a morning a comradeship of heroes was laid 
from every corner of the world came sailing the 15th International Brigade. They came to stand beside the Spanish people to try and stem the rising fascist tide. Franco's allies were the powerful and wealthy. Frank Ryan's men came from the other side. Even the olives were bleeding as a battle for Madrid. It thundered on. Truth and love against the force of evil. Brotherhood against the fascist clan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the chorus is Viva la Quinta Brigada. No pasaran, no pasaran the pledge that made them fight. No pasaran is the pledge. Yeah. They will not pass like Gandalf or the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And <laughs> Adelante was the cry around the hillside. Adelante meaning, you know, forward. Let us all remember them tonight. Um, and he gives then a list of various different individuals who went. And one of them was Frank Ryan. Frank Ryan is a kind of interesting character. He's you know, celebrated to some extent in, in, in certain circles in Ireland. Still, he was a guy who went uh, to fight against Franco. He was, previous to that, he was a member of the IRA in Ireland and, and had, um, you know, uh, he was a bit too late to fight against the British, but uh, he was, the IRA was still there after the Irish state was given freedom in 1920 from the British, but uh, the IRA was still formed afterwards and because uh, they weren't happy about partition in Ireland which was the fact that uh, only part of Ireland got freedom and the, the, the north remained part of the UK so um, the IRA was still there the, 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 the section of the IRA who had kicked the British out they broke in two and one of them was not happy with partition and the other ones were so he was a part of the ones that weren't happy and he went then to fight because I mean the whole IRA movement and stuff and kicking the British out in 19 or fighting the British in 1916 and getting Freedom in 1920 was informed again by the whole Bolshevik Revolution and you know those ideas of you know uh, overthrow the evil taskmasters and you know power to the working class and stuff. So he, they he, naturally identified with it. Absolutely. Yeah. So they went to you know help out the Spanish and they were you know had a history of being fighters and stuff. So they, he went to Spain and he was arrested. He fought in the Spanish Civil War against Franco. He was uh, arrested and imprisoned for 16 months and then. Through the help of the Irish state, he was handed over to the Germans. Uh, to uh, there's a group, a German military intelligence organization at the time called Abwehr. Uh, he was handed over to them at the border between France and Spain, and they took him. And this is a strange thing because so the Nazis and Franco were in league, and he was there fighting Franco. But he then realized that this was in this was 1939, right at the beginning of the Second World War. So then he said, okay. I'm in the hands of the Germans now. And the Germans are saying, you're in Ireland, right? You don't like the British, right? And we're just, we've just started a war with the British. So how about we hang out, right? <laughs> so it's like, it originally started off with the enemy of my enemy is my, my friend type of thing, but then the anim- his enemy had a friend who was also his enemy. But anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the point being that he saw an opportunity, depending on the way the war had just started, depending on the way the war was going to go, it would have been profitable for him and the IRA to associate themselves with the Germans and get their help to, you know, get rid of the British or, you know, if if the Germans were going to win and take over all of Europe, well then that would decide to be on. But he was, I mean, he wasn't necessarily, he wasn't, he didn't adhere to their, to their ideology, but he saw that what was he going to do, you know? Um, So, he ended up going back and there were various different ideas the Nazis had for setting up a kind of spy bases in Ireland to, and to even to use Ireland as a transmitter. They were thinking of transmitting propaganda from Ireland to America, uh, Nazi propaganda, you know, all sorts of crazy ideas. Um, 
Well, that's that's just an interesting little anecdote about the guy who's mentioned in that song, um, Frank Ryan, and uh, to this day he's, he's got a statue in Dublin, and some people, some kind of right wingers, are you know after the war, I kind of have been attacking and defaming or damaging his statue and writing things on it, um, claiming that he was essentially a supporter of Nazis and fascism when. It's bizarre, you know, because he was actually fighting against fascism in Spain, and then mm-hmm. because he just had some contact with the Nazis, which he couldn't really control, uh, he, he's then yeah. lionized, or not lionized, but condemned uh, later. Well, there's an interesting tie-in here with what we discussed before. The 15th International Brigade was actually also made up of the Abraham Lincoln Battalion that came from the United States. Mm-hmm. I think the figure is something like 20,000. American volunteers went to Spain and about a third of them were black. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a much higher ratio than actually fought in the Second World War, for example, that came immediately after. For me, the take-home message of the significance of that war is that un- unlike what normally happens, no- normally you only get certain types attracted, desperate enough to, or to be drawn enough into violence wherever it springs up, you know, you might get mercenaries. They've no compunction with going to a war anywhere. They'll see what they'll, they'll benefit from it. Um, but this was unique in that you had such a huge voluntary effort, citizen effort. The, the, there was no American military force no. going to Spain. There was no British military force. Absolutely not. The, the British and American governments obstructed supplies getting to what was essentially a citizen army. Um, Whereas the the fascists on Franco's side, they had the full technological support of Mm. the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Because the West was grooming Hitler for the big fight that they were going to start. Yeah, grooming and or appeasing. And it it was... Citizens said, well, they're not doing anything about it, so we're going to do something about it. Um, And they stretched on for three years. That was the build-up to... It ended, and then Second World War started straight away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's all very interesting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, yeah. So, there's since we're on Irish topics, we might as well just get, get this out of the way. People know, probably most people know a song by you two called "Sunday Bloody Sunday." Uh, I don't like you. That's too. a great protest song. No, it's not. It's uh, not. I hate you. Well, according to Bono, it's not because Bono came out after. You know, however many years at a concert just before the song was played and said, This is not a protest song. Um, or no, it was a protest. This is not a, a Republican song. He was basically saying that it was not what people had taken it for, which was an anti British song. Uh, and it's, um, you know, I never liked Bono anyway, but uh, <laughs> the thing is, there's another song called Bloody. Bloody Sunday, Bloody Sunday, uh, and it's by John Lennon. And most people probably have never heard it, but it's the song that you two should have written, and uh, John Lennon made no bones about uh, bones about the fact that it was a protest song. And in the words of the song, he, it's pretty clear what he was saying. And this is obviously for people who don't know, Bloody Sunday was a day in 1972 when. Irish Catholic people in the north of Ireland who were holding a civil rights demonstration where 14 of them were shot by, shot and killed by British troops. 
as we mentioned earlier on the show, most likely on <clears throat> direct orders from on high to because obviously civil rights demonstrations and stuff are not allowed by the ruling elite. So here's what uh, John Lennon had to say about it and what Bono of you two should have said. for the Irish put the English back to sea, you know? So uh, that's what Living with Yoko does to you. Well, <laughs> because that, I, was, I, that I, was like the worst song he has ever written in I his think it's a great life. song. Like the lyrics are fantastic. <laughs> Listen the to music it is... Well, the thing about it is, in between the chorus there is just sung by Yoko. And she's wailing, as she does a lot. She did a lot, oh, you know? Sing. She really she's sucks. a wailer. But, uh, she gets a bad rap, but I don't know. if you, He went on his super creative spell... You know, well, I wouldn't say thanks to Yoko, but she was there by his side. I mean, he became Maybe he did who he became. Of her. I agree. I don't know. I think she was the creative. Well, I mean, John. It's, I'm, I'm pretty. I, I like John Lennon a lot. I'm proud of him because of the kind of stance he took on most things. Uh, the stance he took was most on most things was was the right stance in terms of yeah. justice. You know, and he he tried his best type of thing. But um, and he, he you know he has other songs. Uh, there's another song called The Luck of the Irish <laughs> which is a good one if you, if you check it out by John Lennon The Luck of the Irish um, but there's this gets, kind of gets us onto a topic 
of protest songs aren't only uh, always for kind of social justice and stuff. There are people who write kind of what, what appear to be social justice songs that are, you know, kind of miss the mark. And there's just on that, on that same topic, don't even have it here. Um, there's a song by the Cranberries, which is another Irish group, pretty famous, well-known. The song Zombie? Yes. Now, that's funny because people saw the video and they heard the song and they thought, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's edgy. That's about Northern Ireland. Yeah, injustice in Northern Ireland. Actually, what she says, both in the song and what she has said publicly, is nothing to do whatsoever with with making a stand, you know? It was in no way a protest song. It's, it's the opposite. The Cranberries and you 2 are like this clean Irish rock yeah. that yeah. we saw so much of basically since 1989. I don't know how, what point we could say rock music became cool because it was clean, but... That's that's for me. After the sixties, things start to go like hair shit because yeah. the music they'll promote is some of it's awesome music. But people, you know, it's catchy and it's, it does sound anthemic, and people have put, make an association with it being a, but a revolutionary song. But really, it's it's all been cleaned out. Song zombie. That I mean, I don't actually have it here. We won't play it. But no. it's um, <clears throat> it's screw the cranberries. It's, uh, it's, it's a commentary on, on Northern Ireland and the conflict in Northern Ireland. And, and Dolores O'Riordan, who is from the Republic of Ireland, uh, typifies a kind of attitude amongst, no offence, Neil, but typifies an attitude amongst, you're not one of them, amongst people in the south of Ireland towards the kind of conflict in the north where it's all just, oh, just stop, will you? This is too much for us. We can't handle it, you know. And so she penned a song, Zombie, and it's, uh, you know, the words are kind of like it's, in your head, in your head, they are fighting with their tanks and their guns and their bombs and their guns. In your head, in your head, they are fighting. And she even has a line in there. Uh, it's the same old theme since 1916, you know. 1916 was the Easter Rising uh, in, in Ireland that led to Irish independence partially for, for, for Ireland. So she even had a dig at that, you know. Yeah. I mean, what kind of... What kind, I mean, and this is... And she totally misses it. It's kind of like this sanctimonious moralizing when she knows nothing about it, you know, uh, she thinks it's just, would you all just stop fighting? And she's blaming everybody, you know, and complaining about, you know, people being killed and mothers, you know, yeah. pushing an emotional button and stuff. And sure, war is horrible. But the point about uh, that she doesn't understand about the conflict in Northern Ireland is that it was entirely uh, orchestrated and financed and funded by the British. And they kept it going for a specific reason, because it was in their interest to keep it going. And... But even more than that, the reason for the conflict in Northern Ireland wasn't even about unification of Ireland. It was about civil rights at the beginning. That's what kicked off the conflict in Northern Ireland beginning in about 1970 for 25 years. was about civil rights. It was about people protesting for civil rights and then being shot. Kind of like in Kent State University shootings, being shot for protesting for simple, basic civil rights that everybody should be entitled to. And that's what started, and the British were not willing to give that. And I'm not going to blame anybody in any community for taking up arms and waging an armed struggle against that kind of oppression. But apparently, Dolores O'Riordan of the Cranberries is willing to do that because she was safe 
down in the south of Ireland and it didn't affect her. But she, was, she felt entitled to moralize and judge it from her ignorant. <laughs> and the Irishman comes out. From her, ign- from her ignorant. Oh, we were like fighting little <laughs> for freedom. It's okay, Joe. I'm with you all the way. No, I'm yeah. just saying. Uh, I am. I hate the Cranberries. I think she's a. She's a so she doesn't cool. know what she's talking about. So just shut up. <laughs> she's she's just know? a total tool. Unless you know, unless you have, uh, unless you're informed on a particular topic, you know. Shut up, or at the very least, don't write a song about it. Yeah, she's she's annoying. Well, what about some of these other musicians who? Um, you're never sure. Is it a protest song? Hmm, it was very popular. Well, he kind of said something. Someone who comes to mind is Bruce Springsteen. Did he write any any protest songs? Very low-key type of thing. Born in the USA, had some little... Well, that became a nationalistic... I know. That's an example of how it turned around. He didn't mean it that way. No. Well, he kind of had a bit of a jab in there of people being sent off. It's still very mild. It's very mild. It's about, you know, the... The chorus is born in the USA. I mean, if you're just listening to the chorus, and most people do, which is most not paying attention. And there's a problem with with songs, you know. Uh, but then there's other songs. You you have a song that you were talking about, Jason. Oh yeah, because um, well, there's a little bit of a story. I mean, this guy this guy apparently is kind of popular, and maybe some people like him. I kind of really got rubbed the wrong way, and then I even heard some more songs from him and got rubbed even more the wrong way. Uh, Tim actually uh, recommended him. He's a Canadian, uh, Baba Brinkman. And he's uh, he's a he's a white rapper, so um, and uh, he sings kind of like I guess you could almost call them political songs, and he's I guess what you'd call like uh, uh, a middleist. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 I play a little example. Uh, yeah, play play that example just from the Social Contract. Thirty seconds or so. Sometimes freedom is violent and gets derailed. The system fails when freedom tips the scales. When a sadistic freak is freed from a prison cell or a big business victimizes people with its sales. Some say we need chaos, but when a government falls, another one pops up. It's like juggling rubber balls. We don't need more freedom. We need tougher laws. Electricity should be double the cost with subsidies involved for those with no money. It's going to be pretty hard to keep this show running if nobody believes there's any room for change. We need fewer cars and more commuter trains and new laws to make sure polluters pay for what they do to our food chain. These are the changes institutions can make if we just use our brains instead of TVs and computer games. Uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag there, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, if you read political pornology, you'll know kind of like about the schizoid declaration and uh, sort of like paramoralizing and stuff. And if you know anything about logical fallacies, you'll know about the parade of horribles and kind of black and white things. So he says like, sometimes freedom is violent and... And it gets derailed, and yeah, that is true. But that doesn't mean that freedom is, or fighting for your freedom, or wanting your freedom is, is any bad. And uh, yeah, you know, sometimes a sadistic freak does get freed from a jail, and that's really kind of unfortunate. But then you have the opposite, which is where lots of people who are innocent end up in sort of torture chambers. So it's like, um, you know, take your pick. The the, and then he he kind of goes on um, where he says, uh, this is where he's like, we don't need you know, more freedom, we need tougher laws, you know, so this guy's automatically got thrown into the authoritarian category. He, he's got a, another one, uh, another thing, uh, and he says uh, to the idea that we should never be restricted, uh, to, but sometimes it's just hilarious how addicted we are to the idea that we should never be restricted at all. But if freedom means driving an SUV and never having to clean up the mess you leave, 
then I say we need less. We need to be less free. <laughs> and I'm just like, Aww. I'm just like, this is really. <clears throat> he's really kind of gone, you know, sort of extreme. You know, it's just yeah. like you want to be free. That means you just want to drive an SUV and pollute the environment or something. It's like, I mean, this guy basically is like insulting people who like really struggle for their freedom. I mean, like Joe's talking about this 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 Arirden character who's like she doesn't know what's going on. And these people are getting shot. Just for basic civil liberties, he's saying, "All you want to do is drive your SUV and overthrow the government in chaos, and we need more institutions and laws." And I'm just like, "Dude, you, and we need to double of, electricity bills." Yeah, double electricity bills. We, we already have this massive problem with poverty, right? And he's like, "Then we need to subsidize the poor." Oh, come on, dude! And this guy's like, at one point, he's like, "If you want to change, run for, for political office." You know what, dude? Why don't we run together? All right, yeah, you first. <laughs> I dare you. I dare you. To get elected to government and make a positive change, if you can, if you then you can keep singing your song because that's just a ridiculous response that people give you. Well, you want to change something? Run for office. You could be president. It's like, dude, there's been like what forty four presidents in the United States out of you know. I mean, come on. It's yeah. like it's it's you're more likely to win the lottery than to become the president or even a senator these days because the incumbency rate is ninety nine percent. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So yeah. It's a perfect example of somebody who's like a total authoritarian and kind of passes himself off um, as some sort of social commentary thing. And he's, some of the things he says are kind of a little bit okay. But I think know. perhaps in the case of Bubba Brinkman, it's a question of him having a conscience but being misinformed, not yeah. having the proper data. That's you know, the problem. You believe in global warming mm-hmm. and you care about the earth, you're going to talk about that kind of thing, right? right? Is it so much that he's an authoritarian follower or he just believes it? Because he has a song called Don't Vote for Meanies, which yeah, is which I an kind anti-Stephen Harper's, but he still says you should vote for the good guy. Right. He doesn't yeah. understand that the whole voting process is a sham, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So I, don't, I wouldn't blame him for that. In all fairness, in all fairness, Don't Vote for Meanie was, was a catchy tune, and I didn't really have such a problem with that one. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a little bit of a lame video yeah. because he's got all these people supposed to be the audience, and they're really very unenthusiastic. Yeah. He's like, Don't Vote for Meanies! And they're all like, Don't Vote for Meanies! Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're just like, dude, you could have had him be a little bit more enthusiastic about that. Tim, do you want to sing us another song? Sure. We can sing one. Let's get some live action here. On a radio show. This one's called Seeing Red. It is also available at the Bandcamp site. For uh, this was from a, a, a point in your in your life where you were. <clears throat> yeah, it's sort of a response to um, I think it was 2006 when uh, Israel bombed the crap out of Lebanon mm-hmm. for some imaginary some, reason. Yep. You know, just and, uh, a bloodlust. It, it made me really, really angry. Mm-hmm. To, Understandable. Uh, and, the, you know, I find music sometimes is a way of expressing these emotions I have when mm-hmm. I see things in the world that I don't like. And rather than, you know, punching my pillow or yeah. screaming into the void, yeah. I'll write a song about it. Um, one of the difficulties with writing songs I've found, and, if, you know, people who've seen me play live, I play a lot of my songs are humorous, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I find it's a an interesting way of reaching or getting a message out through humor. I'm not playing too many humorous songs tonight, but uh, mm-hmm. it's sort of a way to couch your message in a way that makes people happier that they can laugh about. Yeah. So, um, but also get the message across. Exactly. Right? It's uh, a lot of 
singer songwriters the problems they face are you know being too preachy for example mm. too self-righteous too self-important or shoving it you know, in people's yeah. faces too much and you or... don't want to do that so it's always a fine line you have to walk mm. when you're writing a song but this one is definitely from an emotional point of view is so, uh, as real as it gets for me so seeing red by seeing Tim red Trepanier. with uh, some backing vocals Excellent. by our dear Juliana and I'm going to pick this one, so bear with me. I'm not a very accomplished picker. I'm going to do my best. So. Take some angry men Stick them in the sand Guns in their hands See what happens When you sign up for war Brother, you get what you pay for How many dead children will Settle the score Babylon can't be much fun When the dead are the lucky ones And I hang my head I'm seeing red, I'm seeing red It's pounding in my head I'm seeing red, I'm seeing red And Lord is just a kid I'm seeing red are riddled with blood the innocent are gone but not forgotten and have you heard the news mom the Zionists ain't the Jews they're just a government that they choose then I'll criticize them if I want to How can conscience win when the media blames the victim and I hang my head? I'm seeing red, I'm seeing red, all bombs and no bread. I'm seeing red, I'm seeing red. Only the rich get fed, I'm seeing red. What human can relate to all those heads of state whose heads are full of hate and whose hearts are never broken cause it's those that make the rules Baby, they're playing us for fools And we're giving them the tools To annihilate us all And I'll never apologize For being mad as hell at all the lies And I hang my head I'm seeing red, I'm seeing red 
We're so easily led I'm seeing red I'm seeing red I'm gonna shout it till I'm dead I'm seeing red That was excellent, Tim. Thank you um, very much. And as you said, that was kind of inspired by the Israeli attack on Lebanon, or rather on Lebanese civilians in 2006. Um, that was when, well, the end result was 1,200 Lebanese civilians dead and two Israeli civilians dead. So figure it out from that. They also attacked the UN compound as well, killed the UN personnel, the Israelis did, um, and all financed and funded and encouraged by George W. Bush. Uh, we have <laughs> Speaking of George W. Bush, uh, <clears throat> there's, there's actually, when I was talking earlier on about um, about songs that protest songs that should be clear and to the point and stuff. Um, there was one song that I heard several years ago um, and it kind of summed up or epitomized for me the kind of protest song the way it should be, uh, direct and clear and to the point and with fairly simple concepts or simple ideas in them. And there was, this one was written about George W. Bush by... Um, <clears throat> by an American kind of uh, punk rock group called No FX. Yeah, No they have, FX. They have, quite, great. they have quite a lot of songs and they've been around for quite a long time and they're <laughs> kind of punky. And, they're, real, they're real punk. But they wrote this one and just it's quite short. Have a quick listen. Hey! And it was a song called The Idiot Son of an Asshole. It's about George Bush. He's not smart. He's student. That's after buying his way into school Beady eyes, probably dyslexic Can he read? No one's really quite sure he finds stuff He executes people Maybe that's why he doesn't have any friends Cocaine and a little drug driving It don't matter We gotta come back to the He's always going to be the unpresident. That was the idiot son of an asshole. And for me, I mean, after eight years of George W. Bush, what more can you say about him? You know? and, it, and it's great because it actually takes it back a generation as well. Gets his, his daddy Bush in there as well. You know? um, but again, who knows of no effects? Not many Who's people, the, really. Uh, the, the asshole with an idiot son. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. Uh, well, that gets me wondering... Today, and by today, let's say we mean the last 20 years or so, what 
protest songs come to mind for any of you? The last 20 years? Yeah. Recent enough. <clears throat> I don't know. Um, last 20 years, I would say, I wouldn't say, changes, um, well, if we talk about like social commentary songs, changes by Tupac definitely was. Um, and what is it, another song? That were really popular? That were really popular. Um, Where is the Love? That was that was not really particularly protest, but it was it was kind of black eyed peas, you know. Well, what about that song you usually play, the Weapons of Mass Destruction? That's fairly new. Is it famous? Yeah, that was, that's probably one. Uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction by by Faithless, Faithless, yeah, their UK band, yeah, yeah. But again, you know, you don't see much of it coming out of the US in terms of, uh, and maybe Dixie Chicks. But again, they, they do a lot of protest songs. I mean, she did not ready to make nice, but that was more like talking about her experience. She she was she was outspoken. Yeah, you know, she was she outspoken because not ready to make nice was a result of the of her speaking the, out, the, speaking the crap out, yeah. that she got and they got right. for saying that they were ashamed that George Bush was from mm. Texas. But that he's was, not from Texas. I know he's not. He's, not. he's from Martha's Vineyard, you know. I mean, yeah, <laughs> they were ashamed. They were ashamed that he was in Texas. Yeah, ever it should be. Um. And they, she said that just on stage, just once. Said that on stage in London, yeah. in maybe two thousand five or something, or Hearts four or five. Them and they, mad at Muhammad Ali for, for talking shit about the way black people were treated, you know, and when he went to Russia or something like that. Oh yeah, he got in a lot of trouble or something. Yeah, so but there isn't a lot, you know, and it's um, they generally don't get they don't get airplay. It's that simple. Yep. There is one though. Um, it was another UK band. It became quite popular before they made an album that, I guess, just wanted to say what was on their mind a bit. And that's Muse. Again, it's supposed right. to be punk rock, but it's more no, that's popular emo. song. Muse? Muse. Totally. They have one song called Uprising. Um, that pretty much lays it all out. Gets into CIA mind control, um, the elites engineering 9-11, you name it. Uh, mm-hmm. Still waiting. Some 41. Don't know it. Oh, yeah, that's a very popular song and was definitely anti-war. Actually, there's a little add-on to that. The lead singer of Muse was later, let's say, forced to recant and say that, no, no, I don't think 9-11 was a conspiracy after all. This is the problem, of course. They see the money bags starting to fly away. Exactly. Right. And so who do you have? There are people out there who have made it there. I mean, they're dedicated. They, they got to survive, too, but they, they're dedicated to writing songs. That means something. You just generally don't hear them. Another British guy, well, he's actually originally was Rayleigh, who stands out. He's actually a jazz musician. His songs aren't particularly, the lyrics anyway, aren't really about what his main message is. He uses his concerts and now his fame, at least within a certain genre, to speak out. And that's Gilad Atman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess nowadays you could call a protest song. You could say that it's, everything is so wrong in the world that even if you if you complain about like you know our materialistic society or uh, your your song ba- uh, making bacon, Tim, for example. I mean, it's not a protest song per se, but I mean everything is so freaking bad in this world that anything that goes against that goes against what the authorities are are selling us. It kind of turns into a, anything that appeals to humanity, to helping each other, whatever. I mean, 
nowadays that's that's what we have. I mean, and there's a lot to complain about. Well, there there was also uh, American Idiot by uh, Green Day. Green, Green Day. Day. Yeah. Jesus of Suburbia was kind of social commentary in a certain sense, and it was a little bit kind of protesting the way kids are drugged and and bombarded with the media. Boulevard of Broken Dreams. So there there were some, but I don't know if people really listened to that album. Well, it doesn't need to be about uh, a war per se, but something that awakens people's conscience and yeah. and interest and that educates them. And on th- on that note, things are so bad that it really anyone with any creative ability can sort of take their pick, <laughs> you know, yeah. choose a topic and go for it. Yeah. Um, somehow, another person I want to give mention to is Tracy Chapman. Yeah. yeah. Now her songs, they they were very com- successful commercially. And I'm wondering what what was it that it just flew under the radar? I think. Talking about a revolution, her, her albums were, her big ones were in the 90s. And I guess there just wasn't the sensitivity. No. A reactionary. Was good in the 90s, supposedly, while the CIA was waging its covert wars all around the world, undercover and under media censorship. Everything was, it was the era of the 80s, 90s was the era of wealth and everything was great as far as people knew, you know. Um, it was nothing for people to complain about, you know. But what's amazing is that people should have so much to complain about now since 9-11. But there's so little. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, the most you see is kind of from people, the people who have been made a target of the kind of warmongers' bloodlust is kind of Muslims and um, not even necessarily Muslims, but people from, you know, uh, people whose origins are in the Middle East or from, you know, North Africa or Pakistan or somewhere like that, particularly in the UK, because there's a lot of kind of um, Pakistani and Indian, uh, of, of Pakistani and Indian descent in the UK, you know. And um, I think there's one of them, there's a guy called, calls himself Loki. His real name is actually Kareem Dennis. The Kareem is because his mother was from Iraq. Right. Yeah. And he, he, he's written a song called Terrorist. Uh, wrote it a few years ago, but again, it doesn't. Obviously, it's not on every <laughs> radio station, you know, in the UK. I mean, what do you put that down to? I mean, is it just the quality of the song, or is it no, uh, no, or, the shit that they play on on the radio? Man? Yeah. Are you kidding me? I mean, have a little listen here. Just so we must ask ourselves, what is the dictionary definition of terrorism? The systematic use of terror, especially as a means of coercion. But what is terror? According to the dictionary I hold in my hand, terror is violent or destructive acts such as bombing, committed by groups in order to intimidate a population or government into granting their demands. They're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist When they put it on me, I tell them this I'm all about peace and love Tell me, what's the bigger threat to human society? BAE systems or homemade IEDs Remote-controlled drones Killing off human lives Or man with homemade bomb Committing suicide I know you were terrified When you saw the towers fall It's all terrified Some forms are more powerful It seems nuts How could there be such agony When more Israelis die from peanut allergies? 
Jesus like the definition didn't ever exist. I guess it's all just a pendant who your nemesis is. Irrelevant, how eloquent the rhetoric peddler is. They're telling fibs now, tell us who the terrorist is. They're calling me a terrorist, like they don't know who the terrorist is. When they put it on me, I tell them this. I'm all about peace and love. But they're calling me a terrorist, like they don't know who Once a deck was democracy, a lending was democracy, hypocrisy, it bothers me. Call you terrorists if you don't want to be a colony. Refuse to bow down to a policy of robbery. Is terrorism my lyrics? When more Vietnam vets killed themselves after the war than died in it, this is very basic. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. They say it's religion, when clearly it isn't. It's not just Muslims that oppose your imperialism. If you go Chavez a Muslim, nah, I didn't think so. It's Castro a Muslim, nah, I didn't think so. It's like the definition didn't ever exist. I guess it's all just dependent who your nemesis is. Irrelevant, how eloquent the rhetoric peddler is. They're telling fibs, now tell us who the terrorist is. They're calling me a terrorist. Mix, mix, you. I love that refrain. Oh, yeah, that's, that's real really good. It makes a few good points there, you know, yeah, about talking about terrorism and said that more Israelis died from peanut allergies in the past uh, mm-hmm. 10 years than they did from terrorist attacks. Yeah. And, uh, and also talking about after Vietnam, he mentions the fact that more uh, Vietnam vets committed suicide that died in Vietnam since Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. He was actually, prior to this, he was critically acclaimed in the UK, so he, was, he had some recognition. Um, enough recognition that it was aired in the States and Glenn Beck then at Fox News did a whole show yep. dedicated to taking him down they played that song and they'd mock you know at each turn oh yeah country with a thousand bases yeah yeah what are you going to do about it sort of thing you know yep. in your face and Loki then <laughs> I think in response to that made another song called Obama Nation and they teamed up, I think, with a couple of American hip-hop stars as well. I say stars that probably weren't that famous, but still, you know, I mean, I grew up in the 90s, and I never never liked hip-hop, because all we'd hear is, you know, about the hoes and the cars and the money and the, the drugs and stuff. But yeah, okay, whatever. But now, you know, you come into contact, there are a lot of people who use hip-hop, hip-hop really, really well. Sure. He's one of them. Um, sure. Yeah, well, that's how it works, you know. I mean, he, he, somebody gets on on Fox News and defames him, and you know, people listen to it, and that's the end of it, you know. I mean, Glenn Beck's such a tool, anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's um, I mean, the biggest, the biggest rapper at the time. I don't know what he's up to today. Eminem. Yeah. I was always kind of like, well, are you going to say anything? What have you got to say? He kind of did. He there was did. a song <clears throat> called Bin Laden. It came out. It was recorded in 2004, not released until 2005. It's actually by Immortal Technique. Um, he's a hip-hop artist who's been constantly on song with Getting the Message Out, Getting the Message Out. Hence, he's not that well-known. But he did team up with someone else who is called Moss Def. Moss Def, yeah. And Eminem produced this. Yeah. Could we possibly... Hear a little bit? Okay. Yeah. Every day, man, it's like these motherfuckers is just like professional liars, you know what I'm saying? It's <laughs> wow. Listen, Bin blow up projects. It was your nigga. Tell the truth, nigga. Push down the tower. Tell the truth, nigga. 
president's speeches are baptized by America and covered in leeches. The dirty water that bleaches your soul and your facial features drown you in propaganda that they spit through the speakers. And if you speak about the evil that the government does, the Patriot Act attract you to the type of your blood. They try to frame you and say you was trying to sell drugs. You throw a federal indictment on niggas to show you love. This shit is run by fake Christians, fake politicians. Look at their mansions and look at the conditions you live in. All they talk about is terrorism on television. They tell you to listen, but they don't really tell you their mission. They funded Al-Qaeda, and now they blame the Muslim religion. Even though Bin Laden was a CIA tactician, they gave him billions of dollars, and they funded his purpose. Fahrenheit 9-11, that's just scratching the surface. <laughs> All right, that is some good stuff right there. There you go, says it all, really. Pretty much. I mean, he even got, like, Bin Laden working for the CIA and, I mean, everything. It was just... <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, Eminem did two. He did one where I couldn't find it again. He did one, I'm an American, and which was kind of a bit yeah. of a social comedy. It wasn't really too too edgy. It was more about, like, the police and stuff, which is kind of typical. He did one, um, Rock Bottom, which was really kind of a social commentary song. And uh, he did another one recently, though, <clears throat> and it debuted on YouTube, and I don't remember the name of it, but it was very, uh, was kind of a bit anti that. And then, of course, he he immediately got into a whole bunch of trouble for drugs and it kind of disappeared from the stage. So, kind of curious. <laughs> I mean, because you're the guy who's rapping about all the drugs he does, and nobody does a thing until he says something political, and all of a sudden, boom, he's in jail. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute, well, hold tells, on a second. It tells you exactly where the, where the priorities are, you know? I mean, he, he sings a song listing all the drugs he's doing as he's recording, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's crazy. It really is. Yeah. Um, there's another guy, uh, Don Byrne. Name sounds familiar. Actually. Dan Byrne, he's been around for a long time, but not very well known again. He he wrote a song called uh, uh, "Talking Al Qaeda," and it's kind of A L K I D A. And oh, the Al Qaeda blues. Well, it's called "Talking Al Qaeda," and, and he makes reference to you know some guy after all this stuff about Al Qaeda, some guy up in Ohio or something <laughs> named Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda, and he's crap crapping himself, you know. Al Qaeda. They're right to get him. I love He's you. freaking out. Man. I love to hear a little bit. Town folks jogging, biking, walking around. When a couple of airplanes came around, hit the big towers, knocked them down. Worst disaster on U.S. soil ever. And by course, there's the Indians, and a few million slaves, and Enron. Why do they hate us? Because we're free. <laughs> free to round up dark-skinned, bearded guys. Free to detain anyone who might have ties to... Simon. Al-Qaeda. Somewhere in Cleveland, there's some guy named Al-Qaeda. K-I-D-A. He's freaking out. <laughs> That's a great song. Congress quick 
quickly rang the bell and tried to fight those terrorist cells with laws designed to never let this country fall to a terrorist threat. Anyone who knows, 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 anyone who might know a terrorist is a terrorist.
and fraudulent science, the first smoking ban of modern times was started by Hitler in 1939. And nobody likes a Hitler. So strike up a match for freedom. Take a long drag for liberty. We'll gather outside in solidarity and pride. For smokers make the best company. And let's all light up. Let's all light up. We love tobacco, won't ever give it up. And let's all light up. Dr. Seuss was no Grinch with his pipe. Charles Darwin studied species of shag. Gandalf had a hobbit of smoking every day. Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung shared a bag. And Mark Twain smoked 40 cigars a day. And like Picasso, Renoir and Van Gogh, he said, if smoking's not allowed in heaven, boys, then to heaven I shall not go. Then along came a most sinister coalition of the boys in Big Pharma and their puppet politicians. For natural tobacco is not organic anymore. The fascists added chemicals in 1984 and nobody likes a a fascist so strike up a match for freedom take a long drag for liberty we'll gather outside in solidarity and pride for smokers make the best company and let's all light up. Let's all light up. We love tobacco, won't ever give it up. And let's all light up. John F. Kennedy, he was partial to Cubans. Marilyn Monroe always kept a secret stash. John Lennon imagined he'd be sharing a smoke with Bob Dylan, Miles Davis, and Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash traded luckies at Folsom. Frank Sinatra smoked cigarettes his way. And without a stogie, Alfred Hitchcock went psycho. John Wayne rolled his own on the range. Yeah, he rolled his own on the range. When a plague hit the planet one day, those who smoked all their lives were the ones who survived. And the skies are not cloudy all day. 
Then along came the dictates from the elite classes. A bunch of greedy governments and corporate jackasses for the biggest crackdown on smoking that the world has ever seen. Started by the neo-Nazis in 2014. And nobody likes a, a, a Nazi. That neo-Nazi, you know. Meta-Nazi, a proto-Nazi. Or a para-Nazi. So strike up a match for freedom. Take a long drag for liberty. We'll gather outside in solidarity and pride. For smokers make the best company. And let's all light up. Let's all light up. We love tobacco, won't ever give it up. And let's all light up. Everybody sing. Let's all. Let's all light up. We love tobacco, won't ever give it up, and let's all light up. Awesome background vocals by Juliana and piano playing by Jason. That Very was, nice, guys. I like that one in particular. That's an excellent song. That's my brand That's, new one. It's only two weeks old. Very good. Fresh off and, the... Uh, fresh off the writing block. Yes, the writing <laughs> block. Uh, yeah, so... Just to make, give another uh, to people where they can buy. Ah, relicsongs.bandcamp.com Okay. Or Signs of the Times on Songs of the Times. Okay, and that's a way you can... Uh, you can support what we're doing here, um, our, all of our projects, uh, and have a good listen to some excellent tunes at the same time. Most excellent. Most excellent. So, we've sort of kind of run over our time, but we're doing that a lot these days. Um, it was a fun show. It was a fun show. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank Thanks you for guys. having me. We, we could... We could have gone on for a lot longer because there's, cause there's yeah. so there's so many other uh, songs and you know it's a great topic stuff to play exactly it's a great topic and we should do it again um, but I think we'll leave it there for this week uh, because it's getting late here and we're all tired out <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah thanks to Tim in particular You're for coming on and, thank you guys uh, for having me playing us some of his most excellent tunes. And to Jason, Neil, and Juliana, and to me, I suppose. I thank, thank you, Joe. For thank you, Joe. Another great show. Emceeing and taking care of the chat and everything. Next week, we're going to be interviewing Finian Cunningham. He's an Irish journalist who's been on the front line, so to speak, in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So we'll hear what he's got it today on Excellent. what's going down at the moment. Excellent. Okay, and since it's a musical show, uh, there's several songs we didn't actually play, but instead of our usual outro, I figure we'll play a little uh, I've heard a very famous song uh, it's a catchy tune and uh, <laughs> it's called Fixing the Die Rag um, it's from the 60s and it's an anti-Vietnam war an anti-war song in general 
Uh, it's kind of upbeat, although it's messages, something to think about. But uh, we'll leave you this one, and we'll see you next week. Thanks to our listeners and our chatters and everybody else for listening. Have a good one. Well, come on, Bye-bye. Bye. you big strong man, Uncle Sam, did you help again? Got himself in a terrible jam, way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun, we're going to have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn, the next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven, open up the pearly gate. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why we're all gonna die. Now come on, Wall Street, don't be slow. I'm man this war a go-go. There's plenty good money to be made. Flying the army with the tool of the trade. Just don't be afraid if you drop the bomb, you drop it on the Viet Cong. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six. Let's move fast Your big chance is here at last Now you can go out and get those reds Cause the only good Tommy is one that's dead And you know that peace can only be one When the long all the kingdom come Sing it! One, two, three Stop the war if you can't sing any better than that. There's about 300,000 of you fuckers out there. I want you to start singing. Come on. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. Come on, one, two, three. What are we fighting for?